Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by my trusty yellow Labrador retriever of a producer, Brandon. You know, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Come on, bro. There's, I, I would have a hard time. I mean, I could, I think I could call you my podcast spouse. That would be the only, the, the only thing closer to me than my dog and my children. All right, I'll, I'll go with the dog one. That, that works a little bit better. Just, just on outward appearance, that sounds a little bit better. Oh my gosh, how have you been, Brandon? How have you I, been? I have been well. Just uh, you know, the same old, same old. That's kind of that that the answer to that question. I think every time. But no, I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing. I'm also doing well. Good man. You know what? Uh, I went to South Dakota for a record for personal record fifth trip this season when you when you hunt pheasants in south dakota or any small game you buy a license that has two five-day periods it's not it's not inexpensive i mean once they add in all the internet fees and now they added a habitat fee this year it's like 150 bucks for two five-day hunting periods so i had already purchased two south dakota licenses and i was really on the fence because this year South Dakota extended their pheasant season by a month. Usually it ends, you know, the first weekend of January, the first weekend after New Year's is the closing weekend. Well, this year they decided to extend it by a month and it was pretty much universally viewed as a cynical move by South Dakota to squeeze more tourism dollars out of uh, gullible suckers like me who are completely addicted to pheasant hunting and it worked (laughs) clearly it worked very well for you for them yeah man i bit the bullet paid the 150 bucks for the third license luckily i can use my second five-day period next season um so yeah i did it and i because part of it was like i wasn't going to go out there if it was 10 degrees with 30 mile an hour winds or anything like that. But it's been an extremely mild winter, which is actually a great sign, you know, great news for the pheasant population for next season. But uh, I mean, as we've talked about before, there's all sorts of hunting I love to do, but South Dakota pheasant hunting is for sure the top of the, of that pyramid for me. It is it is my favorite hunting, and you and I have been out pheasant hunting, so you got a little bit of a taste of what's so great about it. Yeah, no, I uh, I got a little bit of a taste and realized I have to go on a workout regimen before I try again <laughs> next year and uh, get myself fit for all that walking. But how many did you? How many did you come away with? I bro? do I do burn a lot of cows out there, which is great. Um, you know what? I went out. F- I hunted for three days, and I came home with nine birds. So that's the limit. I shot. Three birds per day, and um, another guy I was with, Simon, who's been on the Flush podcast, and I actually been on the Flush TV show as well. Uh, he shot a couple limits the two days he was with me, uh, and then I was also with my friend Jorge Vacuna, who will be a future guest on the podcast. I think both those guys will be future guests on this podcast, and then another guy out there we hunt with sometimes joined me for a day. So it was a small group, which I really like. Uh, just you know, two two guys, three guys, and four guys on the three different days. 
Um, we saw a ton of birds. It's hard this time of year with, with a few guys. You definitely see birds fly away from a distance because you don't have enough hunters to block every edge of every field like you do earlier in the season when you're with a group of eight or you know eight or ten hunters but if, if you're okay with that if you realize that you're gonna some birds are gonna fly out and you're not even gonna come close to them and other birds are gonna stick really tight and you're gonna shoot them so i i put together a little video from some Co gopro video that i'll post later this week on on my social media channels if people are interested it's just like a three and a half or four minute video that shows some highlights of this hunt but you'll see that some of the birds stuck really tight and it just it's great because you see the dog his nose is in the cattails you know there's a bird in there you the only thing you don't know is if it's a rooster or a hen and so you have time to kind of get you know get into shooting position get ready to go and have a real good shot at the bird so it, it was really a fantastic it's you know what it is brandon huh. it's it's the it's the weekend that i will now dream about daydream about for the next nine months until i get to go back pheasant hunting that's awesome that's really really cool what's uh, i guess my main question is so what do you plan on making like food wise out of these pheasants? oh yeah well they're hanging in my front yard right now which uh, you know where i live in a neighbor's got a lot of kind of a bougie suburb of <laughs> minneapolis and i got nine dead birds hanging from a birch tree in my front yard um because you're, you're, you're that guy that the kids whisper about <laughs> in the neighborhood like you know those dead birds outside? boo radley lives in that house <laughs> yeah. with the dead birds <laughs> yeah it's uh i am bringing a little bit of the country to the city good yeah what am i gonna make i here's what i decided on these i've got a bunch of pheasants already in the freezer this time i'm and so I've got whole birds ready for like smoking or whole bird roasting. This time, I think I'm going to break them down. So I'll, I'll freeze the breast meat separately from the thigh meat, separately from the leg meat. Uh, and then I'm going to roast all the, the bones and, you know, the, the, the leftover wobbly bits and everything. And then make just a whole ton of uh, broth. That, that I then freeze in like those Kemp's ice cream gallon buckets and thaw them as I need, you know, stock for soups or gravies or something like that. Sounds like a good plan. Sounds awesome. Yeah, and I think here's what I'm going to do with some of the breast meat. I'm going to make um, uh, schnitzel, pheasant schnitzel. So, pound, you know, pound it real thin uh, with a rolling pin and then dredge it through milk and egg and and uh breadcrumbs and then fry it in butter that and that's a the traditional kind of german schnitzel preparation so yeah that's sounds, that's the plan with some of those breasts yeah that sounds amazing that sounds really good the schnitzel and maybe some more maybe i'll make some more sausage what do you think about that that would be awesome i i, I gotta <laughs> tell you we uh me and my girlfriend we grilled up those uh sausages just it was a couple weeks ago or a week or so ago and uh they were so good it was and it's cool for me because i've never eaten a pheasant sausage of that that ilk before uh-huh uh -huh. it was awesome it was it's the, the it was it was just good even the texture was interesting and and, and fun so yeah I, I really enjoyed it so i'd be more than happy to take a couple more off your hands okay yeah. yeah you know well i'll get some to you for sure perfect absolutely i mean we're at a point now i got a 16 year old kid still at home 
and this kid eats like two pounds of meat per day, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, he, between, between Aiden and me, we shot three white-tailed deer and we've already, we're already halfway through our, all of our venison meat. Cause he eats so much meat. <laughs> I mean, he's at the gym right now. He goes to g- lift weights two hours a day. So then he's, it's, it's really something. Well, anyway, it's a good thing you're hunting. This, uh, <laughs> instead we of need all the protein. All the yeah. We need all the protein we can get. Hey, Brandon, I'm really excited about the guest today. I've been trying to get her for a while on the podcast. She's very busy, so I am I just feel really blessed and fortunate to have Jamie Becker Finn on the podcast. She is, I mean, I, I've actually run into her. The, the times I've met her are at um, pint nights for backcountry hunters and anglers, which, of course, aren't happening during COVID. These are all pre-COVID. But... Um, that's where I've met her in person and gotten to know her a little bit, but also following her online and and in the news because she's a state representative in Minnesota. She represents. She talks about in, in the conversation the area she represents um, in in the northeastern suburbs of the Twin Cities. Uh, she's on you know a couple committees. She's she's an attorney. She works. For the uh, for Hennepin County as a county attorney, she actually uh, had my brother as a professor in law school, which is kind of cool. Um, but Jamie's also Native American, um, and you know we talk about that's that's I think a big part of her the way she legislates and the way she um, the way she thinks about her public life as a public figure is her Anishinaabe heritage and growing up on a reservation um, and and her connection to the land and to game and fish. Uh, she's a very outspoken uh, proponent of conservation and of uh, in our state, she is a steadfast champion for habitat um, for, for our wild game. So I'm a huge fan of Jamie's and I'm really, really excited that she has joined us on the podcast. Yeah, she was fantastic. And this has very little to do with the interview, but this did happen just after the interview took place just after January 6th. So she also talks about her political life and how, how that's been as well. And, and the, the trials and tribulations that come with being a public. Yeah, that's right. She does. Yeah, it's true. So uh, here it is. I know you'll love it. If uh, if you do, you know, subscribe, rate, review, and let your friends know about the Reverend Hunter podcast. We really appreciate your support. Here is my conversation with Minnesota State Representative and Native Anishinaabe, Jamie Becker Finn. Jamie, welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. I'm so happy. We've tried so long to get you on this podcast. My gosh, it's yeah, been a I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's finally working out. Uh, you are, uh, you rep- you're, you're in the Minnesota House of Representatives, and we're going to get into just all sorts of different interests you have and, and interests that you and I share in, in the hunting and fishing world and stuff like that. But first of all, tell us a little bit about what District 42B is like, uh, the, the district you represent. 
Yeah, so I, uh, it's a suburban district. So we're in the suburbs uh, northeast of St. Paul. So Roseville areas where I live. Um, I won't list all the suburban cities because nobody actually cares when you list all those cities. But um, so we're, we're, we're purely in the suburbs, uh, although we, uh, we have a decent sized lot. So we have, you know, a garden and uh, room for the dogs to run around and, and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I grew up in northern Minnesota, but have been a suburbanite for, geez, 20, 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And what, like, how would you, I, I, I've, I already told you before we started recording that your mayor in Roseville sat next to me in high school Latin class and he and he and I are still good friends. Shout out to Dan Rowe. Uh, <laughs> what's it like? What's, uh, what's the district? Is it, you know, suburban blue collar? What, what's the vibe of the, the people you represent? Yeah, so it, it's actually, um, it's pretty diverse. Um, you know, we've got, you know, kind of it spans because I, there, I have 14 lakes in my suburban district, which oh, is pretty cool. unique, even within Minnesota, most people don't have that many lakes in their district. And so um, with that comes people who own lakeshore property. And so we've kind of got you know, the folks who live around the lake um, have pretty nice homes, but then we also have, you know, four different manufactured home parks, quite a bit of rental housing. Um, the the area I live in is very, you know, single family residential, but I, it really, um, you know, I think some of the assumptions people make about the suburbs are sort of interesting. You know, many uh, our neighbors who moved in across the street a couple of years ago, we hadn't really got to know them yet. And one day I looked out the window and I was like, is, is he, is he preparing a goose? Um, <laughs> and, uh, it turns out that he goes goose hunting. <laughs> um, awesome. yeah. So, but it was like this bizarre thing where it's like, you know, this like family with like four little girls, I look across the street and I'm like, what is he doing in his driveway? And he was, he was taking the feathers off a goose. So, um, you know, I don't think it's quite, uh, you know, we've, a lot of people who wanted fish, I think, you know, that kind of comes with the lakes too, that uh, yeah. a lot of people yeah. like to be outdoors and in Roseville in particular, and we have, a, we have a lot of good parks. So it's people who like to be outdoors, people who have cabins and snowmobiles and like to be outside. So it's, it's a good fit for me if I'm going to be in the suburbs. Hey, a couple funny stories. One is that my wife, uh, she moved up here in 2011 from Texas and she, she was a journalist down there. And, um, she got an assignment to photograph something in Roseville, right? You know, shortly after she arrived. And I live on the opposite. You live in the northeast suburbs of the Twin Cities. I live in the southwest suburbs. And I said to her, she got an assignment in Roseville. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Roseville is so far away. <laughs> like, you're really going to be fighting traffic through downtown. And she got home after that. Uh, she was like, are you kidding me? Like I, I got there in 20 minutes. I, it, from, from Dallas to Fort Worth takes like an hour. <laughs> and no, like, we think the same way about uh, <laughs> the Southwest suburbs where I'm yeah. like, look, I don't drive any further than like downtown Minneapolis, maybe uptown, but like anything past that is like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, and then the other funny thing about cleaning birds is like you, uh, you know, I live in the suburbs and um, 
I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but one nice thing about our cycle is that we get uh, the garbage and recycling comes on uh, Tuesday. So if I get back from a weekend hunt, I can let my birds hang. Like this last weekend, I got back from South Dakota. I, I let the birds hang in the garage on Sunday night after I returned and let them thaw out a little bit because they were all frozen in the back of my truck. And then I could clean them on Monday and then they're, you know, the, the gunk is taken away on Tuesday. Well now in Minnesota, I mean, in Edina, we have organics composting, right? So now I can throw all my pheasant feathers and guts and, and, you know, all, all the, the carcass and whatever into the organics compost. I'm sure that's why people in Edina campaign for that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so this is funny. My kid, my youngest, is 16, and he was a couple weeks ago, right after one of these these trips, he was uh, like standing in the living room looking out the front window when the organics compost truck came by, and the guy dumped my bin into the back of his truck and then my son said he could see the guy laughing and he took out his phone and took a picture in the, <laughs> of the back of his dump truck or garbage truck because it was all full of like pheasant feathers <laughs> so <laughs> nice yeah anyway um you uh well let's let's just talk briefly about where we're at even though this this interview is going to air in a couple weeks. Uh, yesterday was a super traumatic day in the United States. We're we're talking the day after the insurrection against the U.S. Capitol, and you know there were people in front of the Minnesota Capitol, your workplace, based on what I read in the newspaper this morning, using similarly violent rhetoric. Um, and even talking about starting to target the the private homes of judges and politicians. So, uh, where what's been your experience of that in the last twenty four hours? Yeah, um, I mean it's been pretty pretty intense. Um, you know, it's as an elected official, and uh, so my my husband works with. Uh, he's worked in the mental health field for a long time, and specifically with people with uh, serious and persistent mental illness. So, you know, our family has always had a little bit, uh, been a little bit more on top of our home security. But mm -hmm. uh, a, a good friend of mine in the legislature had, you know, seventy five armed. Uh, angry people show up in his, you know, outside his home last mm. weekend. And, you know, and that was already kind of had us in higher alert. And, uh, you know, and then with everything that happened yesterday, I mean, my, uh, we spent the afternoon um, installing blinds on windows to our home that we'd never felt like we needed blinds on before and uh, installing, uh, ring cameras, uh, outside our home. And, uh, mm. you know, it, my kids are, uh, six and a half, uh, and, and 10. And, you know, we, we had an interesting family meeting last night trying to explain to your kids, mm -hmm. you know, why, why are you, why are you doing all this stuff? And, um, you know, while trying to keep them, you know, I still want their home to be a place where they feel safe. And so it's, it's a hard time to be uh, an elected official. You know, it's, 
it's it's never it's never been an easy job, but it's particularly been challenging this year for sure. Yeah, uh, in the paper today also was something that my representative Dean Phillips in the House yelled, uh, "This is your fault!" Last night at his Republican colleagues as they were clearing the House of Representatives as that was getting stormed by these rioters. And what what was interesting to me about that is, you know. Um, Representative Phillips says he's a moderate guy and he's part of the comments, whatever it's called, the Common Sense Caucus, and he works with Republicans regularly. It seemed out of character for him uh, to do something like that publicly. So, I mean, what's it? How do you represent people? Uh, you're a Democrat. How do you represent the Republicans in your district? when things are so politicized and polarized? Yeah, well, so now, um, you know, the thing is, is like these groups of people, it's like the same group of like 75 to 100 people that are, you know, like, so these, the people that are a biggest threat to my security in my own home are generally probably not my constituents. And, okay. um, you know, so kind of, you know, I, I like to keep that in mind. And, you know, in a normal year, I wasn't able to do it this year. But, you know, I've, uh, so I was just elected to my third term. So I mean, the last four years, I have spent a lot of time going door to door. Um, you know, door knocking is a big part of being, uh, being, you know, running for office. Mm-hmm. at this level in particular. And, um, you know, y- you have those conversations one-on-one. And so, you know, the thing that I try to remind, you know, my kids and remind myself is that, you know, this really isn't a large percentage of the population. It's just really unfortunate that um, this really vocal subset of the population, you know, is using this violent language and violent actions. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's, we, we were actually really careful not to put the TV on yesterday because, you know, my kids, their mom's been uh, a representative for the last four years. You know, they're they're comfortable in our state capital and I didn't want them to see those images of what was happening in mm-hmm. DC and think that, you know, that's a thing that is going to happen when my mom is at the Capitol in Minnesota. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's been a really heavy 24 hours, um, for sure. And I think, um, you know, kind of to your original question, actually hunting is one of those things where I tend to connect a lot with people who are more conservative, yeah, uh, me too. Th- than I am, you know, it's people will, <laughs> I, I can't even tell you how many times, you know, I, I usually start when I knock on somebody's door and I introduce myself and then I say, you know, what's, what's something that you really care about that you want me to know about? Um, and people will, you know, sometimes you'll get, well, I don't want you to take my guns away. And I was like, well, I don't want anyone to take my guns away either. And then they kind <laughs> right, of are like, right. oh, wait, and, you know, and especially like as a, uh, you know, a woman in her thirties, it's not ex- what they're expecting from me. Um, yeah. And then we end up having a whole conversation about what we hunt and what we hunt with. And it, you know, and then they realize that, you know, we actually do have a lot in common. So, um, you know, that's ended up being something that is actually a point where uh, I find I can come together with, with people that I represent. Yeah, that's very cool. You're, I mean, I have the same experience of uh, hunting brings me into contact with people who are not usually like in my Twitter echo chamber, you know? Um, 
you are renowned in Minnesota for being you know one of our state politicians most engaged in issues like conservation and hunting and fishing um did that what was the genesis of that for you what why has that become such an important part of your political career so the funny thing is is that you know that's just who i am it it wasn't like this strategic oh there's this void that needs to be filled i'll do that you know because that is how some politicians operate you know um what's a thing where i can get in the paper a lot i i did not run for office intending to be like the legislative expert on chronic wasting disease uh for, for sure but that i mean that's when people think of chronic wasting disease that's like probably the number one hunt Thing that like the hunting outdoors media will contact me about mm-hmm. um you know that's that's just who i am um to be honest the you know i had the environment committee on my list of committees i would like to serve on but it wasn't like uh and i'll be all have to serve there but when i uh when i got that committee assignment and i walked in that room the first time in 2017 and i looked around the room and i was the youngest person by at least 10, maybe 15 to 20 years. Hmm. And um, everyone else in the room is white and male. (laughs) Hmm. Um, I, it was like this, it was at first, it was like, uh, you know, shrink back for a second. And then it was like, oh, this is why I need to be here. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask how those committee assignments get made. If it's, I mean, are are those old white guys on that committee because they've asked their party leadership for that assignment uh, because that's what interests them? Yes, generally. So generally the way it works is uh, after an election, when you know who's who's going to be on your team for that next year, uh, the next two years, you, you put in your assignment uh, requests to your, your leader, whether that's the speaker or the minority leader, and then um, ultimately the speaker of the house gets to decide. Uh, but yeah, generally people ask to be on things either about issues they care about or where they're kind of their background falls. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's let's hear about your upbringing because you grew up on a Native American reservation in Minnesota, and you your heritage is Ojibwe. Um, wh- what was that like? Paint a picture for us of of your childhood. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, well. <laughs> I say, I, when I describe this, it's, I guess only people from rural Minnesota will, will sort of get this, but it's like, I grew up in, in rural Cass Lake. So, um, which is funny because Cass Lake only has a, you know, when I was growing up was a thousand and one people on the population sign, but I didn't grow up in town. So, you know, the difference okay. between growing up in town. And, um, so I, you know, I grew up on, uh, on a lake, uh, on the kind of chain of lakes, uh, between Bemidji and Cass Lake, um, on the Leech Lake Reservation. And, um, you know, my family, I mean, my family goes back um, on the, you know, my Anishinaabe roots go back further than we have record of, Hmm. essentially. So I grew up in the same 
on the same land in the same place that my dad spent his entire life other than college, um, in the same place that my grandma spent her entire life and was born. Um, and so, you know, I grew up running around in the woods and, um, you know, swimming in the lake every day when it was warm enough, uh, very, I mean, very rural, but also very, um, kind of, you know, res life (laughs) kind of, um, as well. So, uh, I mean, I, and I had cousins everywhere. So I, when I first went to college, my first roommate was like, why do you talk about your cousins all the time? (laughs) Um, but it's because I grew up around so much of my, so many of my family members lived in that same place too, that it, you know, that's, that's who my friends were as a child were my cousins. So, uh, you know, very immersed in my family and and the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And what's it, how, how is your upbringing on a reservation and with the native heritage and practice different from, you know, the majority of us in, in the white, you know, the way I was brought up, uh, although I wasn't really brought up hunting at all, but you know, fishing and whatever it was, it was a recreational activity, but I don't think we, you know, really considered it part of our identity by any means. Um, was that different for you? Was it, were those outdoor activities kind of more woven into your life and even your spirituality growing up? Yeah. So, so like, so on the, the spirituality piece, cause I think I'm guessing from being a listener of your podcast, that this will sort of be interesting to you, but um, I like to describe the way that I was raised as a reservation Catholic. Mm, um, yeah. And what I mean by that is that, so my, my family went to the Catholic church, but it was like, it wasn't like the people who grew up Catholic in other areas because it was like, they couldn't be, the priest couldn't demand the strictness of adherence to things to the same degree because then nobody would have come. And so (laughs) it it was like, we would, so we would go, that's the church we would, I was, I was, baptized and did first communion and that's where i would go like on easter and christmas but then many many of us still practice more traditional things too you know and i don't want to give the impression that i was some like raised in some super traditional way because there there certainly are folks in um our community that that do uh you know practice those things but it was sort of a mix of the two Mm -hmm. where it was like you would have these sort of, um, you know, based in our uh, Anishinaabe uh, way of life and traditional beliefs, but also <laughs> go to Catholic church. So, um, you know, I to be a Native person a- alive right now is a contradiction in itself. Yeah. You know, so it's like my, your whole life is sort of having to navigate these two spaces and ways of thinking. And so I think, you know, to the, you know, sort of hunting and fishing part, um, you know, I think that's the thing that for me, it's, um, it, it wasn't a hobby because I, you know, certainly I grew up more comfortable, but my, so my dad grew up on, 
on the reservation, um, Ojibwe family, uh, nine kids, uh, nine siblings, so 10 kids. Uh, you know, he, he has stories of just incredibly, how incredibly um, poor they, mm. they were. And um, so it was really, my, my dad was the third oldest. And so the older, the older boys in particular, um, their, their dad was a big hunter, trapper, fisherman. And so, I mean, that was how they fed the family. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my, my dad even has stories too of, you know, having to forego things at school so that he could go ricing. Um, So, because then you could sell the rice and then that money could be used by your family. And so, you know, very much uh, a way of to survive that way. But also I think the you know, to me, the changing seasons, I don't get super like upset, like, oh, summer's over. It's it's more like, oh, yay, now it's time to, to go ricing. And now it's time to do, you know, then it's going to be deer season. And now it's ice fishing. And so it, the sort of the, the rolling of the seasons, I think, is just, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's more, uh, it's just, this is the way that it is um, kind of thing and not a thing that I know that I can control. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, and th- the best example of that is I, so a couple of years ago, I took some other legislators um, all from the twin cities and suburbs up North to go ricing, uh, to go harvest wild rice uh, up at Leech Lake. And, you know, we originally had sort of like, I'm trying to guess like two months in advance when the rice is going to be ready to harvest. And of course, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we guessed wrong. And it was, <laughs> you know, all these legislators like, but you said it was going to be this weekend. And I'm like, Mother Nature doesn't care. Yeah. Uh, you know, the rice is ready when it's ready. And, um, you know, so sort of that letting go of you just you, I think growing up in rural, rural anywhere, you're forced more to accept that there are things out of your control um, within, you know, nature or the weather that you just have to accept and work with and you're not going to be able to control it. Yeah. uh, I, that's great perspective. I, you know, going back to what you said about growing up as like a, a Native American Catholic that I, I lived on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota for three summers and w- became very immersed in that. And in fact, I lived in a Catholic town. What the, what the missionaries had done was they basically, you know, split up res- reservations. So they'd give one reservation to the Episcopal Church. What, the next reservation would be Presbyterian. The next reservation would be Catholic. Um, and they, you know, they, they didn't compete once they got kind of on these reservations. And I remember I was fresh out of seminary and feeling some discomfort at the way that the Christian faith on the Pine Ridge reservation was a hybrid between the, the traditional Catholicism that I was familiar with, though I wasn't personally Catholic, but I was, I, I knew kind of how it worked and also Native American spirituality. And at first, you know, like I said, I was I was uncomfortable with that until the priests who worked out there were kind of like, dude, get over it. <laughs> like, this isn't, right. uh, these are not in conflict. And let's take into account 
the terrible, terrible history of Christians and Christian missionaries on these reservations. And maybe, you know, don't get so upset when you see, I, I remember there was a wake going on at the Catholic church. And I hung out a lot in this little convenience store called Pinky's in Manderson, South Dakota. And Pinky, the proprietor, she told me uh, to buy a pack of Marlboros and bring it to the wake at the Catholic church and offer it as a tobacco sacrifice, you know, for the grieving family. And I was like, whoa, 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 this isn't, you know, what I do. This isn't part of my faith. And she just basically looked at me and she's like, you're going to do what I tell you to do right now. Uh, here's the here's the pack of cigarettes. And it was one of those experiences that really stuck with me of like, maybe my spirituality as I've conceived it is too narrow. And it was one of those moments where I was forced to broaden my understanding of faith and God and spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so one thing I just want to correct, you use the word sacrifice. So that wasn't, um, you know, it's when we offer uh, a SEMA or tobacco, um, you know, it, it's an offering. Offering. It's, yeah. I'm sorry. You're right. Right. That yeah, was, I'm sure it, the word she used was an offering. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, and I, that's probably why I was not confirmed in the Catholic church because that's kind of when the, um, maybe it was just the priest who was assigned to that church at that time. But, uh, um, I, I was asked to not, uh, come back to confirmation class. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I suppose people who know me now maybe wouldn't be that, uh, surprised by that, but, um, just, I, I was asking too many questions because yeah. it, you know, and maybe that was the point at which those two worlds, um, I couldn't make them make sense together anymore. Um, and you know, it was sort of this like, well, wait, 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 wait. So, so we'll go to, to heaven, but like this other really good human being I know isn't going to go to heaven just because he like didn't go to this church. Like that doesn't make, you know, it was like those kinds of questions were. <laughs> Um, too much. I think it was like yeah. the rest of the the kids in this class are just accepting what I say, um, and you're asking me questions, and I don't want to answer them. So, um, you know, that ended up being fine. And as a so, I married I married a Lutheran, um, and you know that's the church that we go to. But but also, I remember when we first moved here and we decided on this church. It's very like social justice, small. Lutheran church in our community. And, uh, you know, my husband and other family members wanted the kids to have some kind of grounding in, in something. And uh, I remember trying to explain to the pastor that like, okay, dude, but here's the thing, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like not knowing how he was going to accept sort of that, uh, those two different things. And, but he ended up being really great about it. And I think he, he at least tried to to understand it. And so it was, it was, it was okay. Um, but I mean, it is, it is hard to describe to people who have not, um, who are not familiar with it. And, you know, like for me, um, you know, and I guess to bring it back to hunting too, is like, that's actually to me, one of the most, uh, times that my, um, my beliefs as an Anishinaabe person are the most clear to me um when there is the 
you know, the the taking of of an animal is when um, it's really clear to me that that's that's where my grounding is um, as far as my spirituality. I would love to hear more about that uh, because I think it's something as as an adult onset hunter i've i nobody taught me any of those rhythms or rituals and i but i've had some very poignant moments like uh, i went on my first elk hunt last year with a friend in colorado and she although i did not shoot an elk we spent a lot of time talking about um she's very uh she considers the death and butchering of an animal as this very spiritual practice. And she like sang to me the mantra that she sings over a dying animal. And it was uh, very super intense and not something I had spent enough time thinking about. So, you know, I, wh- what can I learn from you in that? Uh, wh- what is it about that? hunting and the death of an animal that connects you spiritually so for for me it always um you know so first i'll I'll paint a little bit of picture where where we hunt so we we hunt on um within the boundaries of the reservation but it's on um private land that was actually owned by my husband's family but we've been hunting there for a very long time and um you know, so that's, you know, it's private land that, that we hunt on. And mm-hmm. I, I always feel after I shoot a deer, it, to me, um, that, that animal, um, you know, the, the creator, we, that animal gave itself so that my family could eat. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've, I've certainly, you know, and I know I've, I've had times too, where it's like, it's a little bit too, I, I didn't, I don't have a range finder, but I should, um, I guess is the way to say, it, cause we, we, we hunt sort of on a wooded area, but along a field. And, um, you know, I remember one time where it was like, I just, I don't think I can, I think that's too far. Um, and you kind of, you know, you do the thing where you're trying to make noises or like, you know, you're, you're desperate. <laughs> Maybe if I try this, it'll get confused and come closer to me. Um, and, and there was one time that that I, I decided to take a shot and of course it was too far. And I was like, okay, I'm not even going to do anything. But after I shot the deer, like bounded closer to me so that then it was in range and, hmm. you know, moments like that in particular, it feels to me that is like, okay, the, the, you know, the, the creator wanted me to ha- get a deer today. Um, hmm. And then I also feel that it, it really is sort of a full circle thing where, that um that animal in my family i guess is the other important thing to know is that you know we're not we're not trophy hunters we are very much this is the meat that we eat i you know i always tell folks that the primary protein my children have eaten their entire lives is venison and it was the same for Mm me um growing up we use it the way most people use beef um and you know that that animal gave itself so my family can eat. And now it's my duty to take care of this forest and take care of these natural resources so that that deer's family can eat. You know, it's sort of Mm. this, um, 
we all have a role to play here and um, it isn't me taking, uh, you know, because I think that's, that's, that's the, one of the things that's hardest, I think, like as an indigenous person, you know, in a colonial based world is, you know, this idea that the earth exists for us to extract things from. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that really gets back, I mean, that gets back into like John Locke and like way back in the first day of property law class, um, you know, that, that property exists for us to do things to or make use of. Um, And, you know, that just isn't the, the, my sensibility as an indigenous person, you know, um, it's all, we're all part of this and I'm not higher on the you know, despite whatever that Bible passage is, you know, it's not, <laughs> I don't need to have yeah. dominion over anything. Um, right. And so I, I, that's how it all sort of comes full circle for me. And then what that means too, is that, you know, after that animal passes, before we even got it, um, you know, we, we put out tobacco and we thank that animal and we, you know, thank the creator and take, take that moment um, before we sort of get into that, the hard work part, uh, to be grateful that our family is going to have this food to eat. And so, you know, that's, you know, as, as much as I can explain it, I just, for me, it's like the most, uh, I, there's not a time that I feel more Anishinaabe than when I'm deer hunting on the same land that my ancestors hunted on. And then, um, you know, that's really this whole thing coming full circle. That's, uh, I mean, I, I think we have, we in the, like the, the colonial white culture have so much to learn from that. And I've always, I, you know, I've always felt this odd tension, I, I guess, because on the one hand, I love the, land that our family owns in central Minnesota. And it's definitely my spiritual home that 276 acres is like, that's, I've had many spiritual experiences there and I hunt there and I've done a lot of writing up there and things like that. And yet it's also on, obviously it's on native land, you know, land that was used by the natives, not owned because I think that's probably not how they understood it. Um, and I mean, you're even must feel that in some ways too, because as you say, it's like private land owned by your husband's family. Um, and I should say and my so husband c- is white. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, and I, that actually gets into another thing that that's complicated as a native person is, is, is it's like, yes, I'm pro public lands, obviously, but, you know, you also, we also need to acknowledge that these public lands, you know, were taken, (laughs) um, you know, sometimes as part of agreements, sometimes it's not some of the agreements less fair, even more or less fair than others. But, um, but ultimately, you know, it's sort of like, I can't, uh, I can't re I can't rewind the clock that far. So, Mm -hmm. You know, ultimately, my goal is in um, honoring those places and the 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 resource. You know, the you know we call them natural resources, but even that is not even a concept that 
you know, my ancestors would have thought it wouldn't be thought of as like a, <laughs> you know, as if it, this is a thing that's mine that I can take from as I need is not mm-hmm. uh, a way that uh, that would have been thought of. How, how can, how can somebody like me who has so much admiration for native culture and spirituality um, it, help me and, em- figure out how I can embrace that or learn from that or even take some of those practices into my own life without just continuing the legacy of colonizing native people and, and practices, you know, without co-opting them, but honoring them and learning from them. Yeah. So I think, so first, like, you know, this is a common thing, um, I think for, for indigenous folks, I assume for, um, uh, black folks for, you know, lots of different people where, um, the thing that's hard is it's, it's like, you want to, I want to honor that you want to learn, but at the same time, it's, you know, it is not the responsibility of native folks or of, you know, of us to, to teach other people, you know, cause that's what happens a lot, especially when you sort of are a more well-known person is that then you're just inundated with asks from people. And then all of your mm-hmm. energy ends up going into, um, trying to help them be better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I, you know, a lot of it is sort of like taking that initiative and having, doing the work yourself. And I think for a lot of people, like that's going to mean, um, going to places and spaces and having conversations that are uncomfortable. And um, I think if there's anything, (laughs) people don't like to be uncomfortable. It's why I, you know, people don't like to door knock. People don't like to cold call uh, people in campaigns because they don't want to have that like awkwardness or that discomfort, but that just, you know, that's how we grow. (laughs) You have to be vulnerable if you want to be, you know, so you have to be vulnerable to admit that I don't understand this or I don't know how this works. Um, And sort of, you know, so having more conversations with, uh, with native folks, um, you know, I, so I, one of my uncles, uh, so one of my, my white uncles, I uh, was actually, uh, uh, he met my dad through, um, at college at U of M Morris. And, um, he didn't know any native folks prior to meeting my dad. And he mm-hmm. ended up, uh, moving up to, to the Cass Lake area and making his life there. And, um, he was an Ojibwe history, uh, and culture teacher at, uh, my, my small elementary school for, you know, 30 some years. And he even helped to start our, uh, our tribal school at Leech Lake, even as a, as a, as a white person. Um, but he really, you know, like that's, that's an extreme example of someone sort of going about it in the right way. And like, he immersed himself in the community and he, but he did the hard work of getting to know people. And it's really a long-term thing. It isn't one of those things where it's like, I want to know about, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm going to go check out this book from the library and then I will know this thing. You know, it's, it's more of a, you know, years long, lifelong effort. It's more of a sensibility, I think, than it mm-hmm. is, uh, 
a task to be checked off your list that a person's able to like, well, now I'm woke. Um, you know, that's, that's yeah. not really how it works. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I have just such vivid memories of my time in, in on the Pine Ridge Reservation and, you know, it was obviously when I went back, when I, when I showed up again for the second year, suddenly I was taken in, you know, to people's homes and, um, ultimately like honored at a powwow and given a tribal flag and stuff like that. And then it became, I mean, it was a great, it was an incredible honor, but I also then the more immersed I got in it and the more friends I made, on the reservation, the more frustrated I became with, you know, white tourism, reservation tourism kind of stuff that was happening. And uh, it's just so tricky to navigate. I mean, another thing that... Yeah, try try I, being try being me. <laughs> yeah, no, I... You know, it's, it's just yeah. constant um, living in two worlds and having to, uh, you know, navigate that. Um, you know, especially, you know, I yeah. have chosen to do my work within like a, a very colonial system of government. Um, yeah. And so that's that's always a challenge, too. But at the same time, you know, it has always felt worth it because the the alternative is that this this other view of the world is not um, at the table at all. But it's 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 a really challenging place to to operate from. Yeah, well, one of the challenges, you know, here in Minnesota that you're way more, I, I, I drive right past Mille Lacs uh, Lake every time I'm going up to our land so many times per year. And um, that is such a contentious body of water. And we don't need to get deep in the weeds, but I mean, it has to do with wa the number of walleye in that lake and the the, the tribes that are allowed by treaty rights to net fish out of the lake and then the recreational fishers uh, you know, anglers and and the resorts that make their and the and the fishing guides that make their living on that lake which was a great walleye fishery and is in some distress now but it's also like <laughs> that lake was the spiritual home of multiple tribes over many generations so I mean, not in that particular case, uh, you know, of that particular body of water, but another tricky thing it must be to navigate is these centuries-old treaty rights in, uh, it, it, you know, in a world where not many people really care much about those treaties or, you know, abiding by them, particularly the people who are sport fishing and hunting or pro private landowners on, on those lands. So right. as a politician, like as a politician and a native person, how do you approach that? That's you're, you're kind of got living in two worlds there as well. Yeah. And I, you know, the thing with, with treaty rights that I think that the common, like the average person does not understand, you know, this is more like worth my, my attorney hat on, but uh, you know, treaty rights are not special rights. They are rights that have always been held and were never given up. So, um, you know, you, you think about it when you think of, you know, like if you sold a piece of property, but you retained the right to still hunt on the back 40, mm -hmm. um, 
you never gave that up in the contract. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's part a part of it. You know, certainly a lot of what goes on um, is 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 grounded in, in racism. Certainly, uh, you know, for our community, you know, some of the the older sort of uh, fishing rights um, issues in you know what whatever it was the sixties seventies uh, with you know save a walleye spear in Indian was a bump bumper sticker. Mm. Um, and you know that was not that was within my my parents' lifetime, and you know right yeah. you know and certainly is a thing that is anytime these things come up um is is something that folks from our community are are really aware of uh and so you know so first it, it it's grounded in that but then legally i mean the 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 funny thing is that uh for folks who care about our our us constitution the us constitution uh, states that treaties are the supreme law of the land. So uh, treaty rights supersede other rights. And that's why um, we see these conflicts, you know, because those treaty rights are going to supersede any state right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I think for folks to really, you know, remind themselves that these are rights that were never given up. It isn't like some special thing that we give to Native folks to, uh you know, be able to do these things. It's, these are our rights that we held before we even conceived of them as rights. And, um, yeah. Interesting. Because I think most people probably you, you know, you read news reports about, Oh, the, the tribes are able to net, uh, this many thousand pounds of fish out of the lake before you know the fishing season even opens or whatever it's the maybe i'm misreading this but i often see it in the media like it's almost uh, portrayed like reparations like the 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 native tribes get to pull this many fish out of the lakes because of how badly we screwed them over for so many years but you're saying it has nothing to do with that these are like agreements some of these agreements predate you know, the statehood of Minnesota. They're between Correct. Two, so- two sovereign nations, right? Between a, a sovereign tribe and the sovereign government, federal government of the United States. Right. And that's, I mean, that's sort of where you see the conflicts too now with 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 pipeline stuff is that that's the other thing is, you know, people, even, uh, you know, attorneys <laughs> who should know better, you know, thinking that our rights only exist within treaty bound or within reservation boundaries, but the reservation boundaries are not the same as the treaty boundaries. So the reservation boundaries are where tribes have control of the land within that boundary. But, um, you know, the where, where Ojibwe treaty rights exist is, you know, a much broader area in Northern Minnesota, um, than just within the reservation boundaries. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's another piece of that. And it, it, that includes hunting, fishing, um, you know, wild rice harvesting, um, you know, and that, that can tie into a whole lot of other things. You know, I've often wondered, you know, at what point in this uh, chronic wasting disease fight, if the state doesn't take enough action, you know, when does that get into the point where, okay, if we retain the right to hunt here, but you poisoned the animals that we need to hunt to survive, you know, so there's, there's, oh, um, yeah, 
it really can be implicated in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I hope it never gets to that point, but I, and, and I will just say, just cause folks should be aware of this with, with Malax, you know, a lot gets said about the, um, how many fish each group is taking but another piece mm -hmm. to this is that they have both zebra mussels and spiny water flea right so there's 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 actually a scientific reason that malax is struggling too and nobody wants to get in like get into the weeds um on in aquatic invasive species. <laughs> there are no more that's the thing there are no more weeds because of the zebra mussels <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But you know, so like, uh, you know, nobody wants to get in it. Like that's because like the, uh, you know, the fiery racist belief isn't fed when we talk about like nerdy things that the Aquatic Invasive Research Center at the University of Minnesota is doing. And so, yeah. um, you know, it's <laughs> all these things are like way more complicated than than people realize or that, uh, you know, a local paper can distill down. Right. And I personally, I mean, I, I'd rather catch a smallmouth bass any day than a walleye just because it's uh, super fun to way more fun to catch. And it's I mean, way it more fun. It does kind of seem like I, I mean, okay. <laughs> I, I, uh, I personally just don't understand it. I have people from outside of Minnesota ask me sometime, like, what's the obsession with walleye? I'm like, well, they taste really good, but I mean, I, they're not great fighters. And the style of fishing isn't super fun, like bouncing a leech off the bottom of the lake. So, I mean, that for me, I, I, but, I, but a lot of people have a lot of like deep psychological commitment to walleye fishing around here. And it's, I, it's just not how I, I, I wasn't raised on a walleye lake. I was raised on a bass and crappie lake, you know? So, um, right. Well, and I was, you know, and I was raised in the heart of walleye country. So it's, uh, you know, I, and I guess I was, I was raised by a man whose thought was like, well, if the walleye aren't biting that time of day, what's the point? <laughs> interesting you know oh my so gosh. it was you know so we never yeah. like we did not go fishing in the middle of the day um interesting it was it was always you know that sundown at like the the right spots on the lake you know was very uh yeah so it is kind of funny because i've been yeah yes yes and we've i've tried to get away from that with my kids i actually think perch tastes better if not mm -hmm. as you know as good <sighs> if not better than walleye so Interesting. <laughs> well, tell us, um, are we going to be able to beat CWD? Uh, are we going to, are we going to turn into the next Wisconsin or are we going to be able to contain it to a small, uh, part of our herd? I'm, our land is in a CWD zone in, um, up near Brainerd. So we've, the last couple of years have had, you know, Un basically unlimited doe hunts for $2.50 a tag um, and have got all our deer tested. Everything's come back negative. Thank God. There's only really been actually one deer up there that tested positive. Um, and it seems to be related to a deer farm. So yeah. So I, where I do don't we stand on that? Yeah, I think, you know, particular in the southern part of the state, it's pretty endemic, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that's that's really concerning. It's this this year has been particularly hard because we don't have um, we didn't have the staffed testing stations 
um, in the CWD zones, and we're relying on people to just either leave the the heads in the head boxes or or send in yep. the the lymph nodes, which are you know it's it's you got enough going on when you have a deer that you've just shot, um, and you know they they haven't gotten the voluntary. Um, you know, kind of cooperation from, from Hunter, you know, and who knows, I you know, I'm not blaming anyone, you know, I, I, I would have, it would have been nice had we figured out a way to staff it in some way, at I least agree. on the busiest, totally on the busiest weekends. Um, I, I think it could have been done. Um, yes. and you know, I've, I've communicated those frustrations to the DNR. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful though, that, you know, just this one year, um, you know, the testing doesn't change how it's spreading. It just changed what changes what we know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't think all is necessarily lost, uh, because of one sort of bad year of data, but I, I don't want folks to get into a false sense of like, oh, well, they hardly found any new ones. Well, yeah, we hardly tested anything. Um, and so I think, you know, really the, the goal now really has to be management and keeping the, the number of deer with CWD as low as, as we can. I think, um, it, it is hard for, so there's multiple things going on, but it's, uh, you know, if Iowa and Wisconsin choose to do nothing, it's not like we have a giant deer fence keeping them from coming into Minnesota. Um, right. you know, so we, we recognize that. Um, but also it doesn't make sense for us to just not do anything here in our state. Um, it's also another one of those jurisdictional quandaries where um, white-tailed deer are, you know, I suppose elk too, uh, are the only species that is raised in captivity as a farm animal and then also exists as yeah. a natural resource that the state has an obligation to protect uh you know it's the only species that yep lives in that um and and that's why we see the connection with with deer farms and um you know the the board of animal health which has jurisdiction over this has not really um you know their their goal is to make sure that deer farming and i'm doing air quotes you can't see me um, uh-huh. yep. you know, uh-huh. is, uh, is, is a successful business operation. That's their goal, you know, which is very much opposed to the goal of someone who completely, uh, is working in the natural resources realm. And so, you know, as much as we would like to, uh, have kind of <laughs> some rules across the board, it, it's incredibly difficult to do that. And, uh, you know, just as an example, it has taken us for years, we have been trying to, so right now, if you go on a, a deer hunt in, uh, let's say, Montana, uh, mm-hmm. Wyoming, whatever, you go to some other state, in order to bring that animal back into uh, Minnesota, it has to be quartered or already butchered, you can't bring a whole carcass uh, across state lines with the spine and everything, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, prevent the spread. But if you pay to go on, a, <laughs> a trophy hunt and I, again, hunt in air quotes, because I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. think of it as like hunting. at a high fence at a high fence yes. type place with capped, basically captive animals. Right. So you go there and you shoot a deer. There are no rules about that is madness, right? 
Um, I mean, I personally don't understand how deer are considered livestock. I personally don't understand why the DNR would have given up jurisdiction over cervid farms years ago and given it to the Department of Agriculture. Like all that stuff, I do not understand. And it's one of those things that, you know, as somebody concerned about a particular issue, you get super mad at our government and the bureaucracy and the different, you know, the the different uh, interests that lobby politicians to be on one side or the other. So I I just like, where do you see hope? Where, um, this has been such a trying time in our country As, as a legislator, where do you see hope? Like, where where are we going to go? And you're, what do you look forward to in, in the next two years where you're serving a bunch of constituents and trying to bring people together and, and move our society forward? So I, I know this is going to sound cheesy, but, um, you know, I do think it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I think, and you're a parent, you know, as a parent, yep. it's, I don't have a choice. Because if I give up on hope, then I've given up on fighting for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I want to make sure that my kids are able to go deer hunting and go fishing and uh, breathe clean air and drink clean water. And, um, but I, I'll say too, you know, since I was elected, so I was first elected in 2016, and at least here in Minnesota, um, kind of every new class that's come in starting with 2016 has really felt to me, um, you know, we have the kind of folks running for office who are not, they don't, it's not the same type of person that ran for office 30 years ago. Hmm. Um, you know, this, this used to be a space that was primarily folks who were either independently wealthy or retired. Mm-hmm. Um, or sort of kind of lifers who because it's a part-time job to be a Minnesota legislator. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. On paper, they, yeah. it's a part-time job. Um, they pay us as if it's I mean, a part-time they, sorry, job. sorry. It's paid. <laughs> it's paid as a part-time job, which is why independently wealthy or retired persons right. would do it. Right. So, um, but now we're sort of seeing, you know, I don't know if it's sort of, you know, in a, uh, you know, post Trump era or, or what, just generationally the change, but you know, the folks who are running for office now, you know, I know for me, I don't, um, you know, people would be like, Oh, what do the stakeholders care about this? Or what are the, what are the lobby? I like, that's not my goal is to mm-hmm. worry about, uh, you know, <laughs> I could, you know, I, I don't care if the chemical industry isn't happy about it, or I don't care if, you know, some giant uh, lobbying entity doesn't like the idea like that's not my job my job is to to fight for the shared values of the people who live in my community and the actual human beings who live in minnesota and not um sort of business interests or or large entities and so i mean and that's sort of you know to kind of come full circle of what we were talking about early on is that's where sort of going door to door and actually knowing the people you represent is so incredibly important because then you know like i I know I can go forward and fight these fights because I've had the conversations on in people on people's front steps and in their yards and I know what they care about. And so, um, and when you talk to that, that many people and you know, the number of positive conversations I have versus the number of like, get off my lawn, uh, 
incidents I have, you know, the, the positive interactions far, far away the negative ones. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, that's sort of what I remind my kids about too, you know, just cause this one person is, is loudly being very terrible. Doesn't mean that that's what most of the people think. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. you just have to remind yourself of that on a really regular basis. Mm. Well, I imagine you have to have some pretty thick skin to be <laughs> in politics these days, but uh, I'm super grateful that you are in it and, and uh, you know, people like you are running for office. Uh, it, th- that's, uh, I think that's a sign of hope for me as a constituent. And I pers- I mean, I've, I've toyed with the idea once, once or twice. And I thought, I don't want to spend every weekend uh, um, knocking on doors when I could be hunting. <laughs> you yeah, give up I mean, a lot of hunting thing- to be a politician. Don't, don't you wish the elections were in the spring or something as opposed to in the fall? That you oh, it's terrible. More? And so the first time I, so I missed the deer opener for the first time in like my entire life since probably age six, uh, the, the, my first election in 2016, because election day uh-huh. fell on the Tuesday uh, after opening firearm weekend. Uh, uh, yeah, just terrible. And then, and then they made us do a training that like oh gosh. Thursday. So I was, so here I was like, okay, I'm going to like get through this election. I'm just going to go sit in the woods for four days. And I was like, yeah. no, we need you to be in St. Paul for a training. I was like, I can't with you people. <laughs> <laughs> now you could just zoom into the meeting from the deer stand but back in those days you probably had to be there in person <laughs> yeah, I, I did i did um so yeah so now uh, it's just kind of like a. Uh, I will also say my husband sat in my stand and uh shot a deer from my stand um <laughs> uh, oh, he also did that at when i had my first kid he was born oh, at the end of october <laughs> yeah <laughs> He's really rubbing it in. Well, yeah. speaking of being in person, I uh, I I look forward to seeing you at a BHA pint night sometime in 2021 after we've both gotten the vaccine. I hope that that will be a threshold we can all cross as a society and get back Absolutely. to our pint nights and our Pheasants Forever banquets and our uh, Minnesota Deer Hunters Association seminars and everything else, uh, or the the DNR roundtable too. I think you and I pr- sat in a couple of the same rooms last year on that about CWD and stuff. So, yeah, it's all going to be virtual this year. But hey, but until then, yeah, we'll yeah. Uh, we'll be fo- seeing you online and and following you know your legislative action. And I I wish you all the best in the coming two years. I, I know you'll be working not on behalf just of, of your constituents, but also of all of us who care about, you know, Minnesota um, hunting and fishing rights and public lands and clean water and all that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks.